Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. Today I want to talk about stories. Oh, my favorite. I literally just said to Mark yesterday, humanity is stories. That's what it is to be human. I agree. Ah, the story is the thing. Yeah. What happened is much less important than how we storify it. So we've talked a little in the podcast already about the importance of stories as a way to access history as a way to keep people alive, as mm-hmm. a way to interest people in things that they otherwise might not be interested in. Mm-hmm. You have this special gift for finding the story <laughs> that is interesting in things that most people would not ever be able to find something interesting <laughs> in. You will be interested in this and I will find a way to make you interested in this. But One thing that I find really interesting is that stories can mess with our timeline. Hmm. We like to have this very tidy timeline of people's lives. People's lives begin at birth, Hmm. and then things happen to them, Mm -hmm. and then they die. And that's their story. And that is how biographies are written. That's how what's-her-name episodes are usually structured. Exactly. (laughs) This is the standard format of biography. Right. Sad music at the dying scene as we make the poignant point. Yeah. The end. And today I want to shake that box a little bit. Okay. Often it does make sense to tell someone's life in a linear, these things happened, then they died kind of story. But our guest today has taken on that idea and really turned it inside out in ways that I think are very productive and very thought-provoking. Okay. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. So today we are talking to Ruby Lal. I was lucky enough to interview Dr. Ruby Lal at the Jaipur Literature Festival in Boulder. The Jaipur Literature Festival in Jaipur, in India, is the largest international literature festival in the world. Ah. I'm very lucky that their first offshoot festival held anywhere but Jaipur in the world is held in Boulder. Every year? Every year. Ah. It is a free festival and they bring in astonishingly incredible authors and speakers and writers and musicians and people from all over the world discussing the entire world's work. Wow, that sounds awesome. It's my favorite weekend of the year every year. This year, Ruby Law was one of the featured speakers. Cool. She was generous enough to do this interview with me 
at the library while the festival was going on. So there is some background noise in a little of this recording. Cool. So you're vicariously taking us to the festival. I am. Huge thanks to the Boulder Library changing to find me a space to record in their busiest weekend of the year as well. Cool. My name is Ruby Lal. I'm a historian of Mughal India, and I teach South Asian history at Emory University in Atlanta. And I love writing books. I've recently written about the great empress of India, Noor Jahan, literally meaning light of the world. Yay! I love her. She is fascinating. A fascinating woman you've never heard of, maybe? <laughs> I didn't even think of that. I mean, you've heard of her. <laughs> I mean, yeah. For most of the Western world, probably Noor Jahan is not a name that most people know. No, not at all. When I teach about her in my world history classes, none of them have ever heard of her before. But in India, she is absolutely a household name. And her story is very, very well known. Kind of. <laughs> her story is told to little girls all over India... She's the stuff of legend. She's an icon. But her accomplishments are firmly slotted into one specific category, getting married. So the legend that surrounds her life begins in something that we actually have no way of verifying, a secret love affair. Akbar the Great's oldest, coveted, very beloved son and she had an affair when they were young. But because she was already promised to a Mughal official, also employed in the court, but a junior official, who was posted in Bengal, the emperor didn't let them marry. So there are legends around this. Another historical fact, yes, she marries, and she goes from Agra, which is in northern India, which is the area of the river Ganges. It's a very fertile northern area. Also in the winters, gets really very cold to the extreme east of India, Bengal, which was like the Wild West at that time. So we are talking the 1590s, and that province had just come under the control of the Mughals. But she lives there for over a decade. They have a daughter, and then, of course, uh, he gets involved in some machinations, and he dies, and she's brought to Agra into the harem of the emperor. And that's when, three years after her arrival, they get married. We know these stories, we know this legend, and this is what lives on about her. And she remains in the collective consciousness as this important and powerful woman, but in a way that never really gets to the details of why she was important. What we know is essentially by way of legends, which are household legends, they are recounted by tour guides, they are recounted by the elderly generations, and it's almost always about that love story between the prince and her. And then the marriage in 1611, and every legend stops there. So we know these legends of love, but these legends of love really lock her biography because from 1611 on is her stupendous rise as the only woman who rules the Mughal Empire along with her husband. So this is really, it's the story of her leadership and really installing her as the great empress of India. One of our fundamental goals, I think, with this podcast when we first started it was to talk about people who never get talked about. 
you know, that the only women from history that we talk about are the queens and the three scientists that we know their names. And if you're really cool, then you bring up Catherine the Great instead of... Elizabeth, yeah. <laughs> so I think we definitely need to talk about all these women who've never been talked about. But this really illustrated to me, we're not even talking about the women we talk about the right way. Hmm. What does it mean when we say she's the only empress? I mean, the emperors were obviously marrying women. Right. How is she the only empress? Right. So what we mean by this is that she's the only woman in Mughal history to ever be a co-ruler with her husband. She wasn't just a favorite wife or a regent or an influence. She holds the power on a level absolutely equal or perhaps even above Emperor Jahangir. But as people keep reminding Ruby Lal when she embarked on this biography, there aren't any sources for this stuff. So how do we know she was a co-ruler? Yeah. Well, she's doing a lot of the things that only emperors do. She's issuing coins with her picture on them. She's issuing executive orders with her own seal and her own signature, independent of Jahangir. She's even appearing on the imperial balcony at the palace, where the emperor is supposed to appear twice a day. He comes out and he's viewed and admired by his subjects. And she takes her place there as the ruler, fulfilling this very ceremonially important duty. One thing I find really interesting about the work that Ruby Law did on this book is so much of women's history focuses around finding new ways to find information. If the problem is there are no sources because no one wrote about women, mm -hmm. how can we find out about women? And so she's had to do a lot of detective work in uncovering what things mean that aren't explicitly stated. One thing that is referenced over and over and over again is Noor Jahan's prowess at hunting. Uh -huh. Now, I think because my point of reference from my training is usually centered in Egypt, that my brain, when I hear the queen is a really good hunter, immediately flips to, okay, birds. Yeah, aristocratic hunting. She's not hunting birds. She is hunting tigers with surprising effectiveness. Cool. On her best day, she killed four tigers with six shots. Jeez. Arrows, I assume? Muskets. Wait, what? She killed four tigers with six musket shots from the top of an elephant. <laughs> that is a bizarre collision of worlds. So the Imperial Cavalcade is on their way to Kashmir, uh, the heavenly hills. And just outside Agra, near Mathura, the villagers come and tell them that this tiger has been prowling the streets of Mathura. Now, the emperor had taken a vow of non-violence when he turned 50, and this was the moment out of certain circumstances when he finally follows that pledge. So she comes, she's the co-sovereign, she comes and she relieves these subjects. So that's a very fun story. Mm -hmm. And it tells us a lot about her personality, about her skill set, about how she is viewed, but tells us many more important things than that if we dig. Hmm. It tells us that she is the ruler. Why? Only the emperor is allowed to kill a tiger. Oh... 
the only person in the kingdom allowed to shoot a tiger is Emperor Jahangir. And she does it. Mm. And so when you begin to read the Jahangir Nama and the other texts of the time, you realize why this hunting is being discussed nonstop. Because it's an informal sign of sovereignty. Everybody couldn't hunt a tiger. It was the prerogative of being the king. And this is the way in which I began to build the grounds uh, for writing this history, because there's been a very important question around women's leadership. There are, these are all the technical signs of sovereignty, such as coins, such as uh, imperial orders in the interest of your subjects. But when I read those orders, I was very taken by her stamp and signature. It says, Noor Jahan, Pacha Begum. Noor Jahan, her name, Pacha, King. Begum is an honorific, literally Lady Emperor. So you have to really break open. There are meanings in how the portraits of her are painted. There are meanings in when she picks up the gun, what she does, the fact that she picks up the gun. So how, how is the Empress learning how to shoot a musket? Right. <laughs> Which is like a brand new invention <laughs> that nobody knows how to do. Right. That's certainly not something ladies do in their spare time. <laughs> when will she have picked up the gun? Of course, aristocratic women learn shooting, horse riding, but I believe that Bengal is that that first marriage is when she she'll have really finessed her hunting skills. One of the things I establish in the book is that her husband will have had to travel quite a lot as this young aspiring officer. And this is something else that Ruby Lal has found through digging through the sort of ignored section of Noor Jahan's history. She has to learn to fend for herself in this wild west boomtown of Bengal. <laughs> and of course, that's where you're going to learn to fire a musket. That the skills she becomes renowned for are inherently rooted in this past that gets elided over those are 10 years that fundamentally shape who she is and the kind of ruler that she becomes who can shoot four tigers from the top of an elephant. Mm. It's also reflected in the way she is portrayed in art. There is an extremely unusual painting of Noor Jahan who was painted by the kingdom's painter laureate. She's dressed as a man. She is loading a musket. Ha! <laughs> Not just shooting the musket, she's loading the musket. She is taking care of her own gun. It is completely unlike anything that is done in the court or by this painter. Hmm. It's the only example of its kind, not only from this world, uh, but also, let's say, the contemporaries of the Mughals, such as the Ottomans of Turkey, or the land her parents came from, from Iran, or uh, the um, dynasties in Central Asia. So the entire Islamic world of the 16th, 17th, possibly even later and earlier. What was going on in Abul Hassan's mind when he was drawing this portrait? 
I posed that question to myself, essentially because there were lots and lots of miniature paintings of women, but they were highly stylized, what we call the beautified mode, in which the only way in which you can tell one woman from another is by the color of her dress or the different jewels, but the faces look the same. This is a full-size portrait uh, in which she's dressed like a nobleman, and the only way we can identify that this is the woman is by the henna designs on her feet, the size of the waist, you know, the technicality of the art. It doesn't even fit the oeuvre of Abul Hassan. So it is a magnificent and exceptional piece of art. What is happening in this painting? Is this Noor Jahan's chosen portrayal? Does she say, I would like you to paint me this way? Or is the painter making a decision? This is who she really is. Again, I've not unearthed this. This was around. It's a prized possession of the Rampur Raza Library in Northern India, but really put on the sidelines. So this is what I mean about habitually not looking where we must be looking. In fact, we don't look carefully enough. She's a really important dynamic force in art, in architecture, in clothing design, in government. You know, the most iconic piece of Indian architecture is the Taj Mahal, and it was based on the tomb that Noor Jahan built for her own parents, which was a a radical departure from the traditional architecture at this point which is based mostly on red sandstone. Her use of white marble, of floral carving, of inlay, of Persian symbolism, of all of these sharp departures shifts the very nature of Mughal architecture at this point and results in the most iconic building in this part of the world. I've been there. I've been to see this tomb and our tour guide never mentioned that this was designed by a woman, that this was designed by Noor Jahan. There was no information at all about who designed this building that literally shifts the entire course of Indian architecture (laughs) was a woman. (laughs) Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. So with the holidays coming up, a lot of people are looking for gifts that can help inspire the kids in their life with real-life women heroes. And I can't think of anything better to send as a gift than a subscription or a one-time gift of the Girls Can Crate, the gift that teaches girls that they can be and do anything. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. This month, Girls Can Crate is bringing back one of their most popular crates ever, The Persevering Painters, featuring incredible artists Mary Cassatt, Frida Kahlo, and Lois Milu Jones. And if you order by December 15th, you can have your first crate delivered by December 24th and enjoy one of the best Girls Can Crates back for a limited time only. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate.com, C-R-A-T-E.com, and use the code HERNAME, all caps, you'll get 20% off your first month's crate on any subscription. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com. And when you order, make sure you use the coupon code HERNAME, all caps, so that they know we sent you.
how do we lose her i mean why don't we know the story why does it take 2018 to get to know her as a co-sovereign and i think that's a really very critical question about the erasure of her power and that's been central in writing this book what seems to have been her downfall is as her stepsons begin to try to vie for power in 1627 emperor jahangir was kidnapped by a nobleman who was trying to hold him for ransom and trying to stage a coup to overthrow the court Empress Nur Jahan could have arranged to pay the ransom. She could have sent his sons to rescue him. She could have asked her trusted military leaders to try and bring him back. Instead, she decides, you know what? I'm going to go rescue him myself. <laughs> so she sets off on an elephant at the head of the army to go rescue her husband from the kidnappers. Right, as you do. Hop on your elephant. As one does, of course. Yeah. And this makes her stepson so angry that he actually kind of sabotages her in this effort. He refuses to obey her orders, and as a result, her rescue attempt fails, and she ends up being taken captive herself. Now, in this scenario, I think I would have been a bit chastened. <laughs> well, that was a huge disaster. Nur Jahan's response is different. Hmm. She seems to have gone wonderful now i'm on the inside this is even easier <laughs> and she raises an army right under the nose of the kidnappers stages an elaborate and daring escape and she and jahangir arrive back at court in their full glory and leaving the kidnappers utterly humiliated and <laughs> having been outsmarted by a woman yes this woman was amazing <laughs> But that seems to have been the moment when uh -huh. her stepsons and the men who support them decide that is too far. So you see in 1626 she rides upon an elephant, yet another elephant, strategizes and goes to save her husband, the emperor, who had been taken captive by a nobleman. Now, it seemed from everything that I've seen and the documentation that you know coins were all right coming on the balcony was all right putting your signature on the order was right but being visible in this way with with a hardcore male call that is the army that was not acceptable you may not lead an army on top of an elephant <laughs> that's for men and the pushback really really starts to rise against her at this point now i think what's happening is it's all well and good to have your father's wife be the empress mm -hmm. until your father is starting to die yeah and suddenly that gets much more complicated and as often happens the most effective way to do that is to debase the role of women in society in general not just the specific woman women's sexuality is debased women are chaotic they should be controlled they're essentially you know powerhouse of trouble so that's what we are talking about and the ability to just completely wholesale remove her from the story becomes much more plausible. 
Eventually, her stepson comes into this legacy, and there's a whole history of wiping off Nurspar from the documents of the time of Shah Jahan, and so on. We will never know exactly what forms it takes, how it travels to modern times that we only hear about the love story. And again, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with love. I think you you encounter that intimacy, you encounter clearly the emperor's admiration. And also this is a patriarchal world in which his support as her father's support, and it's a male world. And the moment that goes, she loses power. So in that sense, it's not a rosy story. It's a, it's a hard-hitting story. But nonetheless, the history of erasure itself is a very critical history. I believe that this is a history of many credible women figures, powerful or not powerful. And, uh, you know, that continues now. We still have this narrative that, like, women have never really been in charge, that they haven't been effective leaders, that they haven't been able to control or lead or inspire entire peoples with very narrow exceptions. We'll allow a Queen Victoria or a Cleopatra as long as we very carefully never acknowledge that this could be common and normal and something that could happen at any time. See, in biographies, people imagine there's a beginning, middle, and end. The chronology is certain. I, you know, given all the things that we've spoken about that I wanted to take legends into account, I begin the book with an afternoon of storytelling with my mother, and those layers have stayed for a very, very long time. They still are there. How they work themselves out is a very difficult question. But I wanted to bring that in. And hence, the story couldn't have been linear. The history couldn't have been linear. That our childhood is finished and we get on or our youth is done. When does a person's life end? When does a person's life begin? Does her life end when she dies? Or does her life continue in the stories and the mythology? How does it end? All good stories need a good ending. (laughs) I don't kill my subject. The last chapter is called Beyond 1627. Beyond extension, enhancement, a future, a horizon. Because she lives in the public imagination. Because power doesn't die. Because she's, she's, she's there for us to see. So, instead of killing our subject, I'm going to introduce our subject. (laughs) That's great. In the winter of 1577, when a large comet passed startingly close to Earth on a road outside Kandahar in Afghanistan, a girl was born to a couple leaving repressive Persia. They were headed to the land beyond the river Indus, Al-Hind, as the Persians and Arabs called it. The great Mughals ruled the vast northern region of this land. And the empire was, in the main, peaceful, economically prosperous, and culturally vibrant, a welcoming home to people of all faiths and leanings from far and wide. She is unusual for the time. 
She soaked with unusual landscape, unusual happiness from the moment of her birth, which was in 1577, as her aristocratic parents left Iran and made their way to Akbar the Great's India, who was in future her father-in-law. And so Noor Jahan was born on the road just outside Kandahar in Afghanistan. According to one legend, she was abandoned on the road. Now, there are three different versions of this legend. And to get the real beauty of these stories, I really recommend that listeners read Ruby Law's version in the book. But the heart of my favorite version of this story is this. Her parents are on the edge of starvation, and they've been robbed repeatedly in this very arduous journey. And when Nur Jahan is born, they're afraid that they won't be able to feed her and their other children. So they make the decision to leave the baby on the side of the road and carry on without her. But after a few miles, her mother is stricken with remorse and demands that her husband turn around and go back for the baby. When he arrives at the tree where they had left her, and here I'm reading from Ruby Lal's account, no sooner had his eyes reached the child than he was almost struck dead with horror. A black snake was coiled around it, extending its fatal jaws to devour the infant. The father rushed forward. The serpent, alarmed at his vociferation, retired into the hollow tree. He took up his daughter unhurt and returned to the mother and gave her child into her arms. Really, the myth, the legend, begins there. There is a historical fact to it, which is that she was indeed born outside Kandahar in 1577. And then her father travels to the great Mughal capital, Fatehpur Sikri under Akbar the Great. He rises to be one of the most amazing noblemen of this entire period. And really, that is, I think, the perfect distillation of what the Mughal Empire was. One thing, yes, we haven't talked about, she becomes possible for all of these reasons that we've discussed, but also really because it's a wandering, peripatetic, nomadic kingship that's always on the move. You know, six months here, two years there, three years there, that sort of thing. And when we say pitching tents, we don't mean one or two tents. We are talking about whole cities on the move, whole bureaucratic administrative structures on the move, the whole court on the move, if you will. Mm. 350,000 people moving together through the desert. Amazing. freedom of bodies is echoed in the freedom of minds and the freedom of ideas and the freedom of new thoughts. Mm. One has to ponder then the relationship of her father-in-law, Akbar the Great, institutes the first harem. Women, you know, in this very migratory uh, nomadic society, go behind the walls in the first harem for the first time in history. And many of them come out into the open again and most visibly in Jahan. So there is something to be thought through about stone structures versus being in the open country. Something about the freedom of the body and the mind. It's almost as if people, no matter what, they'll will themselves onto history. And I think she's doing that. 
Huge thanks to Ruby Lal, the Jaipur Literature Festival, and the Boulder Public Library. Thanks also to Jeremy Root, Christina Barnsdale, and Leon Christiansen for sponsoring this episode on Patreon. You can become a supporter of the podcast for as little as a dollar a month and help us create more women's history. Just click on the donate link at our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Music for this episode was provided by Indrajit Banerjee, the Navatman Music Collective, Ashok Patak, Vinod Prasanna, Oki Zoke, and Pompey. If you'd like to learn more about Noor Jahan, you'll find links, pictures, and more information about Ruby Lal and her books at whatshernamepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review at iTunes or wherever you listen. It's much more important than you think in helping new listeners find us. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.